Welcome, y'all. This is Volts, and I'm your host, David Roberts. Uh, we had some big news this week. I'm not talking about the attempted coup. I'm talking about Democrats winning the two Senate runoffs in Georgia on Tuesday, thereby giving Joe Biden a Democratic Congress, a Democratic majority in both the House and Senate. This is a very big deal. It has a lot of uh, consequences and implications, and it turned out I had a lot to say about it. <laughs> so for those of you who do not feel like uh, reading my long post on this Friday afternoon, I will read it for you. So here we go. Subhead 1, Control Over the Senate Matters. Democrats have 50 senators. Well, 48 plus independents, Bernie Sanders and Angus Young. And Vice President Harris casts the tie-breaking vote, so technically they have a majority in the Senate, albeit the smallest possible majority. But in the U.S. Senate, the one-vote difference between being in the minority and being in the majority is a chasm. Just ask incoming Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Most importantly, the Senate Majority Leader controls which bills come to the floor. McConnell was forever refusing to bring bills to a vote unless he had the entire GOP caucus behind him, even bills with enough bipartisan support to pass. It was an incredibly effective weapon to suppress and obscure the Democratic agenda. New Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will be able to control the tempo and focus now. Secondly, Senate committees will now be chaired by Dems who can choose what to hold hearings on and when. Thirdly, this is going to make it much easier for Biden to get his appointments confirmed by the Senate, which is a huge relief. Those fights would have drained his attention and political capital. The day after the election, Biden announced that he would nominate Merrick Garland for Attorney General. Suck it, Mitch. Fourthly, if Dems can maintain their unity, which is never a given, they can begin populating the federal bench with competent progressive judges to offset the incompetent reactionaries McConnell has been cranking out. And if Justice Stephen Breyer should choose to retire, and here I am making the sign of the cross, they will have an opportunity to get a solid progressive on the Supreme Court. Losing the Senate would have been a disaster for Dems. Congress would have passed nothing, leaving Biden virtually alone to accomplish everything his coalition needs to hang together in 2022 and 2024. Instead, they have a narrow majority in the Senate to match their increasingly narrow majority in the House. So it is a non-disaster. That said, it's not going to lead to progressive legislation. Subhead 2. A 50-50 Senate will be owned and operated by Joe Manchin. Pre-November, Democrats were pretty high on election optimism, smoking some bad polls, it turned out. And there was talk of a sweeping New Deal-esque agenda, beginning with an aggressive democracy reform package and moving quickly into climate change. Biden's published plans constituted the most progressive agenda any Democratic presidential candidate has run on in decades. 
That was all premised on the idea of Democrats winning 52 or 53 seats in the Senate. And if we're being honest with ourselves, even that wouldn't have been nearly enough of a margin for Dems to pass the kind of agenda Biden ran on. But with only 50 seats, Democrats will need unanimity for every move they make. Republicans will be united in obstruction. It is what they know best. It is where they shine. There are only a few Republican senators who even pretend to be moderate anymore. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney, basically. And even if one or two Republicans can be picked off for a given vote on a given bill, that's not enough to fully offset losing conservative Dems like Joe Manchin, now the chair of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, uh, Kirsten Sinema and John Tester, plus independent Angus King. Basically, the rightmost handful of Dems in the Senate will be the narrow aperture through which all legislation must pass. And as such, they will have almost total veto power over every part of the agenda. They will decide what gets through. Manchin does not want to pass Medicare for All or a Green New Deal. He doesn't even want to pass Biden's actual climate plan. He doesn't want to do anything big at all, which he has made very clear as the lead of this New York Times story uh, says as follows. Senator Joe Manchin III of West Virginia, the most conservative member of his party in the Senate, has a message for fellow Democrats hoping to capture the majority and quickly begin muscling through legislation to bring about sweeping liberal change, not on his watch. <clears throat> Most importantly, Manchin doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, and he's not alone in that. Without 50 votes to scrap it, the filibuster stays, which means no major legislation will pass. No more COVID relief bills, no democracy reform bill, no climate bill, no health care bill, nothing. Period. Full stop. I cannot stress this point enough. There is no significant legislation in the universe for which 10 Republican senators will cross over to vote with Democrats, save perhaps defense spending authorization. Keeping the filibuster means deliberately taking major legislation off the table. That doesn't mean there's no hope for clean energy in the new Congress, though. Subhead 3, Opportunities for Climate Progress. I've already written about all the things Biden can do using executive authority alone. All of that is still on the table, though as we will see below, it is somewhat complicated by the Georgia development. But what about Congress? There is at least one place where Democrats could get substantial clean energy legislation passed. And it's called budget reconciliation. I wrote a long piece on budget reconciliation last year, which I recommend since everyone needs to study up on this. It's a bit difficult to nail down because the rules governing it are not statutory, but adopted rules of the Senate, which can be changed either at the beginning of the session or on a case-by-case -case basis. So reconciliation is, in many ways, whatever the Senate wants it to be. Budget reconciliation was originally conceived of in modest terms as a way for the Senate to finalize the work, to finalize and work out any discrepancies in the federal budget for the year. 
Unlike normal legislation, it cannot be filibustered, so it requires only a majority vote. As normal legislation has become more difficult, both parties have increasingly turned to reconciliation to pass their priorities. Quoting uh, my own story from last year, in an age of partisan gridlock, the boundaries of reconciliation's use have been pushed by both parties. As polarization has made it harder to legislate under regular order, says Molly Reynolds, a congressional scholar at the Brookings Institution, the pot of gold at the end of the reconciliation rainbow has become more and more valuable as a way to pursue party-defining achievements. But reconciliation is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It can't be used for just anything. Quoting myself again, The big and most obvious limitations are that a budget reconciliation bill is typically only passed once a year, cannot create or change regulations, and cannot create or direct any discretionary spending, things like research, defense, and environmental protection. It can only mess with mandatory spending or the tax code. Within that basic framework, the biggest limitations are imposed by the Byrd Rule, introduced by then-Senate Minority Leader Robert Byrd in 1985, and subsequently incorporated into the Congressional Budget Act in 1990. Byrd wanted to prohibit extraneous measures in reconciliation bills. He defined extraneous as any measure, quoting Vox's Dylan Matthews, that would change Social Security, don't change the overall level of spending or revenue, or where such a change is merely incidental, increase deficits outside the 10-year budget window, and or are outside the jurisdiction of the committee recommending them. All reconciliation bills receive a special analysis to see if they abide by these restrictions, a process known semi-affectionately as a bird bath. This set of restrictions creates a kind of conceptual puzzle into which reconciliation policies must fit. They must materially affect spending or revenue, but they must balance out over the budget window, typically 10 years. Any new spending or tax expenditures must be paid for within that window. So, what kind of clean energy policy can fit through this reconciliation process? The most obvious place to look is at measures that directly affect the budget. A refunded carbon fee, clean energy tax credits, and RD&D investments, infrastructure investments, and the like. Anything that spends money or charges fees. A variety of mandatory spending programs, think Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, and unemployment benefits, could be tweaked to support a just transition away from fossil fuels. A green bank or an infrastructure bank with a green focus could be established to make ongoing clean energy investments. There's also some thinking underway about how to tweak regulatory programs so that they work via the budget and thus could pass reconciliation. For instance, there are several ways that a national clean energy standard to decarbonize the electricity sector by 2035 could be adapted to reconciliation. More on that in a post coming soon. But it's a lot of work translating regulations into budget measures, and there are a lot of regulations needed. In theory, the Democratic majority could vote to suspend or change reconciliation rules for particular measures, like democracy reform, 
If challenged by the Senate parliamentarian who rules on these matters, they could simply vote to override. But it's not clear why that bit of procedural radicalism would be any more congenial to Manchin than ditching the filibuster. Total democratic unity is almost certainly going to be required to get any ambitious reconciliation bill passed. Remember, other democratic interest groups also want their priorities included. Republicans are going to hate these bills. And so once again, Manchin will be the gatekeeper. That will mean, among other things, that carbon capture, utilization, and storage gets a lot of money along with a bunch of other stuff Greens don't like. Nonetheless, budget reconciliation is likely the biggest bite Dems will get at the apple, and they'll get at least two before the 2022 elections. Uh, then we turn to the Congressional Review Act. Uh, Trump did an enormous amount of regulatory damage in his four years, and Biden's administration could easily spend four years cleaning it up. It could use some help. Helpfully, there's a law called the Congressional Review Act. I wrote a piece about it in, good lord, 2011, that has some background. Quoting myself yet again, the Congressional Review Act is a law Newt Gingrich got passed back in 1996. It says that within 60 days of a regulation being passed by the executive branch, a majority in both houses of Congress can vote to nullify it. It can't be filibustered, so you only need a majority in the Senate, not the usual 60. At the time, the law was rarely used because the circumstances in which it could possibly work are narrow. Any bill has to be signed into law by a president, and presidents don't generally want to nullify their own administration's regulations, so a president is only likely to sign a Congressional Review Act that nullifies what the previous president did in the last 60 days of their term in office. And that new president needs both houses of Congress to be controlled by their party as well. It doesn't seem like it ought to happen much, and it hadn't, until Hillary Clinton lost to Trump and Republicans took both houses in 2016. Republicans went on an immediate deregulatory bender, nixing 16 Obama rules passed in his last 60 days. Now it's happened again. Trump lost to Biden, and Democrats took both houses. So Democrats can use the Congressional Review Act to nullify everything Trump did in his last 60 days with the stroke of a pen. And Trump has done a lot in his last 60 days. ProPublica has a special project devoted just to tracking all the last-minute regulatory changes Trump's administration has pushed and is pushing through. There's a short article in the National Law Review about how best to use the Congressional Review Act. And over at Morning Consult, Lisa Martine Jenkins has a nice chart covering the various ways that Democrats might overturn Trump regulations, including by using the Congressional Review Act. Among the Congressional Review Act's top targets, the EPA's odious secret science rule, which would prohibit the agency from considering a huge and pivotal body of studies on public health, the EPA's twisting of cost-benefit analysis to ignore most of the benefits of air pollution rules, the Department of Interior's recent leasing of Alaskan Arctic land for oil and gas drilling, 
and the recent assault on the Migratory Bird Treaty, and many more. Democratic wonks have been tracking the Trump administration closely and stand ready to write a comprehensive Congressional Review Act bill. It should and likely will be a top priority for the new Congress. Subhead 3. Uncertainties abound. Roughly 100% of my political prognostications in the last five years have proven laughably wrong so I'm not even going to pretend to predict what course the next few years will take. As the last few days have demonstrated, yet again, anything can happen. But there are a few particular strands that I'll be keeping my eye on. There's at least some chance that Manchin is just positioning himself on the filibuster. Other filibuster supporters, like Ron Wyden of Oregon, have recently said that while they don't want to get rid of it, they aren't simply going to let Republicans block everything again. There's some chance that if Democrats lead with the democracy reform bill and Republicans block it, Wyden, Manchin, and other Democrats could be persuaded to suspend the filibuster on a one-time basis or reform it, say, so that senators once again have to conduct talking filibusters appearing on the floor rather than simply vowing to filibuster through a press release. Another wrinkle is that having a Democratic Congress might weaken Biden's drive to maximize executive action. He might think that if he acts too aggressively, he'll lose the cooperation of key Democratic moderates. I think that would be a huge mistake. Executive action is something he knows he can do, while congressional cooperation, as Biden should have learned under Obama, can be a maddening ephemera. There's also the question of the 2022 elections. A president's first midterms are typically a disaster in which their party loses congressional seats. Think, if you can stand it, about 2010. And in 2020, Republicans won the key state houses that will allow them to gerrymander themselves more seats, so there's a very real chance Democrats could lose the House in 2022. The Senate landscape will be more congenial to Democrats. Republicans are defending 20 seats. Democrats are only defending 13. But Senate races are devilishly difficult to handicap. So 2022 could see Democrats keeping both houses, which would strengthen their mandate. Losing the House and keeping the Senate, which would put a freeze on new legislation and open up the possibility of impeachment, Republicans will make up some reason. Or losing both houses, which opens up the possibility of impeachment and removal from office. And then there's the question of Biden's health and the Democratic presidential candidate in 2024, which is even more opaque and unpredictable. We are cursed to live in interesting times. The Republican Party could implode. U.S. democracy could crumble in the face of authoritarianism. Meteor could strike. These are all open possibilities. So in the end, my advice to the Democratic Congress is the same as my advice was to Biden. Blitz. Only two years are guaranteed. The only hope Democrats have of surviving the waves of white grievance and authoritarianism that are crashing against D.C., strengthened 
by deep structural deficiencies in the U.S. constitutional system is to rapidly and visibly improve the lives of ordinary people. Get the pandemic under control. Give Americans money to get through the recession. Give them access to affordable health care. Make it easier for them to vote and invest in the clean energy growth that will employ them and clean their air. Do it proudly and loudly and make sure everyone hears about it. If you have to write a check to every citizen of West Virginia to get it done, well then, all hail our new overlord, Joe Manchin. Blessed be his beneficence. Thanks for listening, y'all, and thanks for subscribing.